0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade
0: novel due out in May. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. The question today is, can we interview this week's guest, Jasmine Manns, a thousand more times? Would that be all right? It would be fine with
1: me. Yes, please. I love everything about this episode. I love Jasmine's voice as a writer. I love her actual voice. I love the poem she read for us. I love her analysis of it. I love the stories she tells about becoming a poet and her justified faith in poetry. I am... So happy that she agreed to speak with us.
0: Oh, me too. And I know everyone listening will feel the same way. So let's tell you about her. Jasmine Manns is a Black American poet artist from Newark, New Jersey. She graduated from the University of Wisconsin Madison with a BA in African American Studies. Her debut collection of poetry, Chalk Outlines of Snow Angels, was published in 2012. And her first nationally distributed collection, Black Girl Call Home, was just published by Penguin on March 9th and was one of Oprah Magazine's most anticipated books of 2021. Jasmine caused a stir in 2015 when a video of her performing her poem, Footnotes for Kanye, went viral on YouTube. Since then, she's continued to build a following through her live performances at venues like the Kennedy Center and Broadway's New Amsterdam Theater. Jasmine is also the resident poet at the Newark Public Library. We started by asking
1: Jasmine about her experience becoming a poet, the first poetry she read or heard and loved. This is what she said.
2: I remember writing my first poem at home and showing my mother she was cooking in the kitchen. And I remember her just saying, like, write more, write more, getting me out of her here because I'm pretty sure she was busy doing something (laughs) that would eventually lead me into these oratory classes and competitions that I would participate in, like as a kid. And like the church basements of different churches, I would get my start sort of there where I would um, be given books by Maya Angelou and uh, Nikki Giovanni. And I was told to recite. And there was something about me that didn't understand the gravity of these poets or these poems. I wanted to do my own work. I wanted to write my own poetry. That's where I kind of truly became a poet. when. I didn't understand these other poets, and I wanted my own story.
1: Do you think there was something about poetry in particular, as opposed to prose, that drew you in? And if so, what was it about it?
2: I believe it was verse. It was not just poetry, but it was music. It was rap lyrics. It was things that rhymed that were beautiful for me. I loved melody. And I love storytelling and I was always drawn to things that held a story, whether that was a song about heartbreak or a rap song that held a full, thick narrative. But as a child, I was always drawn to a good story and rhyme. I wanted to rhyme. When you think about storytelling and rhyme and verse, it not only attaches itself to the memory, but also the body. And so I think at a young age, I was able to memorize and store words in a way that I did not know would be useful to me today.
1: Did you ever have a feeling like, I'm not very good at this, and then you got better?
2: Oh, I think that's the most consistent feeling.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so bad at rhyme. (laughs) I guess I'm looking for inspiration that if I kept at it, I might get better. Yeah,
2: I think as I grow in the art form, I'm introduced to new complexities of rhyme and storytelling. I've entered in spaces where storytelling was just digital. I've entered in spaces um, where storytelling was just voice and then in certain spaces where it was just words on page there are spaces of storytelling where no poets exist and so there are always different ways to engage the art form i'm always feeling like i'm just a student relearning something over and over again especially now like being my like first days as like an author of a book that is nationally distributed. It's a new experience and engaging people and art. And so I think every few months, I feel like I'm just new at this thing.
0: Every time I start a new book, I think this should feel familiar by now. This should feel routine by now. And it never does.
2: You're like, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Why do I feel like I know nothing? Right. I even feel that way with each interview. I'm like, why am I nervous? I shouldn't mm-hmm. be nervous. Right.
0: I, I feel that way too. Right. Always,
2: always.
1: So when did you decide that you wanted to be a professional poet and Why?
2: It's so funny because I was just looking at an old article that was pulled up of mine from high school where I think I was very certain that I was going to be a lawyer and a fashion designer (laughs) and that poetry was just something that I did as a hobby. I think poetry was leading me way before my mind understood the journey. And in college, it's the thing that kept me interested because I was taking classes that either allowed me to write poetry or allowed me to engage in poetic thought and Black poetic thought at that. And so that's what kept me interested. And being able to just stay in college allowed me to strategically engage with professors and engage in my art form and become in a way that like, I would not have been able to if I didn't go to college. And then like in spaces where I wasn't necessarily writing poetry, I was engaging in voice and dialogue and critical thinking skills. And so I think the stars were aligning on my behalf in a way that I didn't understand, but like I was always committed to being a writer and committed to being a performer. And I knew that poetry would be a resource for me in a way that other things were not accessible. And so if I wanted to go to London or graduate from college or even potentially buy my mother a house, that I saw that strategy through poetry. If I wanted to even like literally tell a story about my own heartbreak, I found that narrative through poetry before I could find that utility through anything else. And even though I do so many other things, poetry is still a part of me. I just feel honored that I can access it in so many different forms.
0: You mentioned that your mother was the first person to encourage you uh, to write poetry. Were there any other people who influenced you in becoming a poet? So, so
2: many. I remember specific teachers in elementary school who gave me books that were not in the school's library that would lead me to a level of thought and critical thinking. When I went to high school, there was this substitute teacher and we all have a memory of how we treat substitute teachers. Yeah. Exactly. I've been a substitute teacher. (laughs) Right. And, And so this guy in particular had a cane that was made of really gorgeous, shiny wood. And he had these really, really thick socks. And he was just this like, cool old black guy and he was teaching our health class but he got in front of the class and he spit a poem and I remember being like who who is this man and and he does (laughs) poems and I remember like walking up to him after the class in awe and being like I want to share my poetry with you mister and he was later like the speech and debate coach and I would later like become a speech and debater and like I would demolish students at like Harvard University and in, in St. Joseph's College, I remember him pulling me up to a seat with him on, on the bus as we were traveling to a university for a debate. And he was like, I was in the black arts movement with your uncle William Manns. And he was referring to my late uncle who was also a poet who passed away. My uncle passed away years before I would meet my speech and debate coach who also knew him. And then, there were friends who would teach me theater and that would imprint on my performance. I went to a performing arts high school. And so everything that I knew had creativity and performance involved in it. And it was just in our bones. In Newark, if you went to the arts high school, you, you were the, one of the colorful kids, the kids in the hood who had talent. It wasn't new for us to be performers, to be loud, to be creative, to dwell in storytelling. It was new for people to see us act that way.
1: I love this image I have of Jasmine as a young girl, and a new teacher walks in, and she notices, because she's a poet, that he's got these really thick socks. Yes, such a great detail. I know. Then he starts spitting a poem, as she says, in health class of all places. And she goes up to him, and she says, basically – you're going to be my mentor. <laughs> I love that she sort of recognized that and that she took the reins and went up to him. And yeah. then, then it turns out he knew her late uncle who was a poet. Doesn't that just make you feel like there's poetry in the air of the universe and it connects people who tune into it?
0: It definitely feels like the universe was at work. And I'm a little bit Sorry that we didn't ask her what he was teaching in health class mm. that made him present the poem. <laughs> right. We may have to reach out to Jasmine for that. Yeah. You know, I wish I could take what she said about poetry being a means to an end and put it on a billboard. When people question the value of the arts in schools, you could just point to the billboard and say... Yes, poetry is a means of expression as an artist. And also, it can take you to college. It can let you travel the world. It can be a way of earning a living and buying your mother a house. And the other thing I've seen again and again is while you're growing up, poetry and every other art form, they can be a touchstone for your identity while you're figuring out who you are.
1: I mean, it does feel different from when we were growing up. Like, I feel like maybe there's more funding now. There's more money available to talented folks who really pursue it than there used to be. But I don't really know. I think we often focus so much on how hard it can be to make your way as an artist, and it is hard, that we forget that there are some channels financially in which art can actually fund your way. So I loved hearing Jasmine say that. And she talks a little bit more about it about the practical significance of poetry in her life later in the interview. But next we asked her how her powerful new poetry collection, Black Girl Call Home, came together. Here's what she
2: said. I stumbled upon agents. And when I say stumbled upon them, they saw a performance of mine and reached out to me. And they were simply like, bring us the Jasmine man's package. Bring us what represents you. I began sculpting and trying to find like what did represent me, what story was worth telling. I immediately knew that the book was going to be called Black Girl Call Home. And I think that goes back to like tailoring language, sharpening language that speaks, that holds a message. And so I remember going to them and saying, Black Girl Call Home. And building these poems tailored to the my black girl experience, my black girl experience in North, my queer black girl experience, my queer black girl experience with love and with my mother and, and with my own daughterhood. I gathered those dynamics and showed them. And we built more and then we craft and they told me things that would later sharpen this narrative of black girl call home.
1: We wanted to ask you whether you would mind walking through one of your poems for us.
2: I have this piece called The Light that we could go through. Let's do it. Great. Should I read it to you and then we just talk through it? Yes. Oh, lovely. I stared at a picture of Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte. Wondered if we still fight the same or bite the same. If we ever made more love than since. If they ever stared at our generation and just wondered where all the fireflies went, did they all die or did they just not find us worth the light, Did they not find us worthy enough of them dressing to the nines in their shine, just waiting to become falling stars between the hands of a blushing girl in front of another, just waiting to give up her audacity and her world? I promise you that if I died tonight in these sheets, I would still want you next to me. Like this love survived all of those riots. I know when you are scared. I I held your hand when the hurricane came Pass me, my lighter. I'm sorry I made you cry. I don't give a fuck if you cry. I will always wipe your tears when you cry. Like I know you did not give me permission to, but I already started asking God about you. told him if he doesn't mind, I'd like to make it to heaven before you do run your bath water, to make you a plate, to turn your TV to your favorite channel, then turn it off and make you believe that you left it that way. And I vow, vow to never to open the door for a sin other than yours. And I promise to always remember your sin and that we will laugh at everything that hurt when we were humans. Like when we were poor, when we slept on our bedroom floor on Leslie Street, when we only had water and grilled cheese, the moment you said, baby, I may not have any money, but I got a soft spot and a melody and a pair of arms that could rock you to sleep. So what are you thinking about taking a chance on me? That's beautiful.
0: Thank you so much for reading that for us. Oh, my gosh. Thank
2: you for listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything um, you'd like to say about it? Anything at all, you know, about the word choice, the origin, line breaks, rhythm, whatever you like?
2: Yeah, um, I I love this piece because I remember being intentional about what love could feel like.
0: Mm. It
2: was a piece written a very long time ago when, when I was in college, when I had my first apartment. I was literally looking at the picture of Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte was like biting down on her neck. And that's when it was like, I wonder if we still fight like them, like the old folks used to Mm. fight the same or bite the same. And so we go from fighting to the passion. I wonder if they just made more love than they ever did since. And I think something like that (laughs) is like super just pretty to say, like when love doesn't make sense, like I wonder if they made more love than since or if they ever just stare. And, And I think like, I talk about fireflies because I think that there's something magical about fireflies. But I also have had personal experiences with fireflies as a kid, catching them and putting them in bottles. Or I remember one day, like, getting my heart broken and my friend taking me on a walk. And he said, like, we're going to run up this hill. And when we run, you have to release some of the pain. And when we ran up the hill, we saw like, like a hundred fireflies as if like light was waiting for me. And oh, so wow. I was saying like, I wonder if they stared at our generation and just wondered where all the fireflies went. Like, did we lose? Did they all die? Or are we just not worth the light? Mm. Does light shine like it did back in those days? And then like fast forwarding, like if I died tonight in these sheets, I would still want you next to me. And this love survived all of those riots and thinking about love that survived riots, thinking about like the NORC riots or or whatever riots we're living through right now. There are lovers that are holding each other through George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor saying like, we made it through those riots or I held your hand when the hurricane came.
1: I think I'm going to have to take that recording of Jasmine reading her poem and listen to it every single night before I go to sleep. Would that be so wrong? I don't think Paul would mind.
0: I think Paul would thank you. (laughs) I've been listening to the audiobook, which Jasmine reads, and following along with the written text. It's something I love to do with music. I'd listen to a recording while reading the score, and I always catch details I would have missed just doing one or the other.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, the way that she reads in particular makes the poem, it just enriches it so much. Yeah. There are so many incredible poems in Black Girl Call Home. The collection opens with two poems that focus on hair. We asked Jasmine why she chose to begin the collection with them, and here's what she said.
2: I wanted to start with joy and youthfulness. I wanted the narrator to be a Black child. And so it's not just like what is being said, but the voice of how language is being projected. It starts with a childishness. It starts with like a little girl seeking her mother and seeking pretty. It led us straight from the cover into this girl's hair, into Mm -hmm. this child's dynamic of beauty. Um, And then we, we join into who her mother is. I wanted people to walk in the house with a welcome and I wanted people to walk in the house with an understanding of who is greeting them and I think that that's what we did.
1: You play with structure or form in the collection. Some poems are long, some are very short, some pieces are more like essays. Can you talk a little bit about the thinking that goes into the form for you?
2: Yeah I um I wanted to engage the reader where they're just not having a flat experience with the book, where there is an experience to be had other than just reading back and forth from left to right. How do you give the audience an interactive experience? How do you give the audience, the reader, an experience that allows them to kind of sit creatively on the edge of the text? And so even when you look at the poem, Serena, it looks messy, it jumps, the the words jump, because I was experiencing a tennis court. I was experiencing a ball being bounced from one space to the next. And so you're kind of traveling with me, right? I mean, as writers, our job is to kind of grab what we see in the mind and put it on paper. There's
1: so many different layers happening. It makes me wonder in part, what the editing process is like and what kind of feedback you get from your editor. It seems like every word is so carefully chosen, even more so than in prose. And so it might be very fraught to get feedback. (laughs) I don't know.
2: Absolutely. Like feedback and editing has been paramount in the process. There has been certain pieces that already came with their own beauty and structure that like we didn't have to bother And then there were pieces I avoided with my soul because I was like, we're going to be editing this piece for (laughs) the next 10 days. (laughs) You could tell that a lot of poems required a lot of different kinds. Even when the Serena Williams piece, it was just like the form looked different in word than it looked in and in Google doc. And so it was just like remembering and honoring form. And then Some mistakes with language or with how the piece was written just became brilliant and we allowed it to stay.
1: Um, You're not just a poet, but also a spoken word poet, which is its own art Mm -hmm, form. mm -hmm. Can you tell us about when you were first introduced to spoken word poetry, when you decided you wanted to try it?
2: Yeah, I have um, like just a strong competitive edge (laughs) and that I think is fostered. Like in my family, like my little brother played football. I was just raised in a family that likes to win stuff.
0: (laughs) This is not where I thought you were going to go with. And so I became became a poet.
2: (laughs) It was speech and debate. And speech and debate allowed me to be competitive with literature. And then what else allowed me to be competitive with literature was spoken word and slam poetry. And so it was like two of these things that I enjoy thoroughly, competition and study and practice with literature. And so while I was in high school and going to college, the literacy scene for young people was being funded and you saw different authors and youth educators putting together literacy programming. And so I was allowed to not just compete and do poetry and slam poetry and performance, but I was also winning scholarship money. If you were able to beat a certain amount of people in poetry, you could afford yourself the ability to go to college. Winning for me meant my opportunity to go to college. And so I was going to beat everybody out and that became my thing.
0: What were your first experiences on stage like? Do do you remember any of the earliest poems that you performed and how you felt?
2: I remember being so wild on stage, like running around the stage, being as loud as I could, not being able to breathe, thinking that if you could just exhaust your whole self, that (laughs) meant that you were giving the best performance. I cringe at old videos of myself (laughs) because um, I was so young and full of just a lot of energy. And as you, I think, watch the videos progress, you can see that energy being honed and tailored into a different voice, a more mature voice.
0: Yeah. Mm. You answered my next question, which was, (laughs) how has your style evolved?
1: (laughs) Well, I would, you know, I've seen videos of more recent performances, and I would actually say it's more of an intense stillness as opposed to sort of frenetic motion, right?
2: I think now more than ever, um, I rely on my voice more than my body. Mm -hmm. I'm allowing myself to experience myself as a voice actress and to experience my own voice. And that's something that I'm using almost like you see musicians and singers, they know the capacities of their voices. They know the emotional undertones. They know how to lure people in with the sound of their voice. And so saying that my voice is instrument and that poem is utility, how do I build the story and the crafty manipulation of art and form? That's what I hope is seen in the stillness just me using and relying on the instrument essentially
1: what is your preparation process like
2: when i'm getting ready to perform i need the most stillness as i can have i like to spend the day doing absolutely nothing anything extra that i'll have to do will make me feel anxious i want the day of just thinking about the words of the poem and so like i'll walk around my house Performing and just being in like the most relaxed state. The best way for me to honor the story is to just spend the day sitting inside of it. Mm -hmm.
1: And how much does interaction with the audience play in?
2: When I'm writing, I try to remove the audience from the story. I don't want my words to be altered based on what someone will think, but I want to know that, like, I'm speaking to my people in their language, in my language, and not showing up to my community with a westernized version of my narrative. That's something truly, truly important to me. And then in performance, especially slam poetry, it is about the narrative imprinting on the audience. That is how you, you win a poetry slam is when the narrative imprints on the audience, and that can happen in multiple different ways. And so when you hear a punchline or when you hear ideas being told in a way that is unique, the audience now remembers that. It imprints on the canon, like people now can reference those things. And so when I'm writing things that I know will imprint for an audience, I am asking myself questions like, which part of this will they remember the most? Why is this going to be creative enough that it will sit in someone's memory? Why is this worth existing in the canon and tailoring language as such?
1: We wanted to end by asking if you could recommend some favorite spoken word artists and also maybe some poetry collections or written word poets.
2: Yeah, um, anything Patricia Smith, Gwendolyn Brooks, Inez Smith, Terrence Hayes. Um, Ahmad Johnson, Alicia Harris, uh, Carvins LaSant. There are so many beautiful, beautiful collections that are, are out right now. Finna by Nate Marshall, um, Clint Smith. So many beautiful poets supported my book and gave me blurbs. Jericho Brown is one of those people. And even non-poetry like Tanahasi Coates or, or the great Toni Morrison are always just beautiful moments of language. Ocean Wong, who's a poet, but wrote a novel on Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous, was one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life. Any of those books, I think, will take you down a rabbit hole of just literary love and just complex emotional thoughts.
1: I don't even know where to start. I love everything that Jasmine just said. I love that she thinks about people walking into her book like they're walking into a house, meeting the girl, meeting her mother. I love this image of her as a young spoken word poet running around the stage yelling. It is so at odds with what she does now. I love that she became a spoken word poet as an alternative to football. And (laughs) I love that poetry actually paid her way through college.
0: I am right there with you. And I also want to mention the drawings that are included at the end of the book. They look like kind of handwritten flowcharts or maybe a family tree, except instead of names and birth dates, they have different words. And Jasmine described those drawings to us as examples of what it's like inside her mind and also a visual of how she builds the ideas that she uses in her poems. She said, including the drawings was a way for readers to engage with her mentally. And also their poetic form in their own right.
1: Yeah. I just, I feel like I have so much more poetry in my life right now after this episode. I love that. And I hope our listeners feel exactly the same way. So that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
0: Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Jasmine at jasminemans.com and on Instagram as Mans.
1: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at julie Sternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com.
0: Until next time, happy book dreaming.
1: Happy book dreaming. Go,
0: now listen to Book Dreams with Julie and-